I got to say, I'm really excited to be here this morning. I'm always a pretty excited person. Those of you that know me know that. I'm just always kind of like, uh, a little bit wired. But like, especially, um, it's really good to be back with all of you. Some of you know, some of you may not. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. We were on vacation. Vacation was wonderful. And I wouldn't have traded it for the world, but I missed you guys. Like, and it's not like, oh, I missed you, right? It's, it's not that. But like, I really did miss, I missed our church. I missed gathering together. Um, I, and it wasn't necessarily the structured church part, but it's, you know, it's the laughter and the conversations in the lobby and the smiles uh, and, and, and those kind of things. It's also sometimes the difficulties, the prayer, the tears, the, the conversations. Like, I, I miss being with you and long to be with you. And that's what makes church what it is. Uh, you know, this, wasn't, this isn't really part of the, the sermon. This is like the mini sermon before the sermon. But I just wanted to say, as I thought about that, I was processing that in this sermon this week, I want to I encourage you, maybe challenge you a little bit, that, that if you haven't stepped into that kind of communal aspect of church, that kind of life and faith journeying together, I want to challenge you to do that. Because I'm telling you, if you don't do that, you are missing out on the best thing that a local church has to offer you. And you may be missing out on what God wants to use more than anything else um, to work in your life. There's just something that happens when we get together. Uh, you know, you can, you can listen to a sermon and listen to music all week long on YouTube or do whatever, um, but people gathering together in spaces like this or even online, there's something that happens. Um, and so I want to encourage you wherever you're at to step towards that today. Maybe you're already pretty committed and pretty plugged in. Take one step in further or maybe take that first step. So we are um, in a series called Who Needs God? We're continuing that this week, and uh, this is actually a series that, that we've been wanting to work for, through for a little while. It's been on my radar for a couple of years. It's a series that's several years old, and this kind of seemed like the perfect time to do it, honestly. It, I thought it piggybacked really well off of the series that we were in in July. We were doing HC Conversations. Uh, Pastor Paul and myself were having uh, talks about just kind of uh, life and faith and questions and where those things intersect, so I thought this went really well off the back of that. Uh, and then just also practically, uh, me being gone two weeks and on vacation, Pastor Paul was gone for a week on vacation, we got a lot coming up this fall and trying to plan and stuff, so just practically, it's kind of nice to have a prepackaged series with a couple of video messages that we could roll um, to give us some breathing room that way. If you've been along with us for a, a little while as a church, you, you know this, but this might be kind of new for, for some of you. Um, Every once in a while, once or twice a year, we'll do a, we'll purchase and use a, a series from another church, uh, and it's a good thing. Um, we think it, you know, it allows us to, again, get some breathing room, but also to introduce some different voices to our community of faith that maybe we wouldn't hear otherwise. So we're going to continue that today. We did video the last two weeks since I wasn't here, and we're going to, uh, I'm going to work through this um, from up here the rest of the time, but this, the idea of who needs God is, is this idea that religion is becoming, uh, It's just, it's just Paul back there playing with our sound settings. Uh, religion is becoming less and less attractive. For, so, for more and more people, religion is becoming less and less attractive. And so we have this thing, maybe you've heard of this phenomenon, it's called the rise of the nuns. Uh, it's just, you know, when you, when you take a, uh, like a survey or a questionnaire, you know, census kind of stuff, whatever that looks like, and there's either a bubble you can fill in or a blank you can fill in, there's a drop-down menu, religious affiliation, and the last one says, none. There's a rise in the number of people that are just collecting, clicking, selecting none. I'm just, I'm not affiliated. No religious affiliation whatsoever. Uh, and, and that may be people who are, are atheists um, and, and don't believe in anything. It's the natural world, although that's not 
really that large of a number of people. It may be people who are agnostic, where it's like, I, I just, maybe I don't know, I don't care, I don't really think about it that much. I just kind of live my life and it's not on my radar. Um, maybe it's, it's uh, this is kind of big right now, it's an embrace of like a self-directed spirituality. It's like the, the, the buzz phrase, the buzzwords that are used as well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And so it's like, I like a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of karma, a little Buddha, some mindfulness, blend it all together, and bada bing, bada boom, I've got my my faith. Uh, so it could be any of those things. Maybe it's that. But it, whatever it is, it's definitely a migration away from traditional religions or traditional faith systems, and specifically in our context, migration away from the Christian faith. And l- listen, I understand that we're a mixed audience, both here, both um, watching online, that this may not resonate with you. You may be like, I don't get what's the big deal. This isn't something that's on my radar. I've not, radar. I've not heard much about this. And just as a generalization, I'm not saying this is a hard, fast rule, but as a generalization, I can say that, that tends to fall very generationally. Um, so if you're, you're here with us and maybe you're a little more seasoned in life, those may not be the things that you're thinking about. But if you're here and you're under the age of maybe 40 plus or minus a few years, if you're part of my generation, we're the millennials, if you're part of the generation behind us, Gen Z, like, this is our reality. We are the nuns. It's our friends, it's our family members, uh, it's our coworkers, it's people that we care about. And if you're a little bit older, it, it may not have presented itself yet, maybe nobody's voiced it yet, but I guarantee you this is some of your children and grandchildren. Um, and as a, as a church, we like talking about these things. We want to talk about these things. It's uh, one of the, the reasons why we actually exist as a church, because when we started out, it's like, we believe that Jesus is utterly amazing, that, that he's incredible, he's worth following with your whole life, that in the, in the marketplace of ideas and worldviews, that Jesus is the best thing the world has going for it. We, we absolutely believe that, and yet we saw so many of our peers and people that we cared about who were, were walking away from faith, and so often for reasons that had little to do with Jesus or little to do with like the core tenets of Christianity. It's these other things that we've added to it. And so this series kind of focuses on some of that. Uh, and there was an introductory week the first week. Last week, the, the video kind of talked about a, a somebody told me so God that sometimes the God we walk away from isn't even the God that's presented in scripture or in Christianity. It's something that somebody told us. And if you haven't watched that, I encourage you to go back and check that out. And some of it was kind of lighthearted and funny. Other of it was more serious, a kind of bodyguard God or boyfriend God or uh, the guilt God, I know that's big for so many of us, a God of like, you're just, you feel guilty all the time. Today, we're going to move into a Bible tells me so Jesus. Um, Bible tells me so Jesus. Now, before we jump into that, I got to preface that with a few things, because this can be kind of controversial. Although, this is one of the things I love about our church, is I don't know that it's going to be for us. I feel like we can talk about pretty much anything, and you're like, yeah, just another Sunday at Hope Community. Um, but if, you, if, you, if you're new with us, or if you're you know, watching in from the outside, uh, especially if you come from a, maybe a Christian background, this may seem a little bit like, wait, I'm not sure about what he's saying. So here's what I'm going to ask. I'm get, give me the benefit of the doubt for the next half hour, um, and just listen carefully, because we're going to go over a whole lot of information. But also, let me preface all this by saying, as a church, we love Scripture. We absolutely love Scripture. We teach the Scripture. We believe in it. Like, like we, we preach from it. Our small group stuff, we, like we are deep into Scripture. We absolutely love this. We affirm things. You know, that great verse in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. We say, yes, that's absolutely true. And if you're a follower of Jesus, 
we, we believe it's authoritative for our lives. I mean, if you're not, then, then you, you don't have to follow this. But if you say, yes, I'm doing the whole Jesus thing, then understanding what's in Scripture and applying it to our lives, like it's authoritative for us. Absolutely, we affirm all of that. But at the same time, we need to talk about kind of a problem with how the Bible has been presented or the position it's been put in in relation to the faith in the church sometimes. And, and the problem is best described in maybe the most famous line of the most famous children's church song ever. And the line goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for... Wow, you guys are on top of it today. That's great. It's like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know. Yes and amen, absolutely, Jesus loves you. He just does. You know, we've been, we've been singing the song the, the past couple of weeks. Jimmy's been crushing it. That song says, he loves you just because he does. Like, Jesus loves you, even when we don't deserve it, even when we've done nothing to earn it. Like, God loves you, and he sent his son for you. Jesus loved me, this I know. But do I believe that because the Bible tells me so, just because I read it in a book? Do I build my life on that because it's in a book? Because there's lots of things I've read in books that I should not build my life on, okay? I'd be, like, in jail right now if I built my life on some of the things that have been read in a book. We're just going to keep, we're just going to keep plowing through it, y'all. We're just, we got this, okay? And so, is there something more than that? That statement, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, kind of implies that the Bible itself, just the book, the text, that that is the reason for our belief, and many of us, if you grew up in church or some sort of Christian kind of upbringing, we either had or still have a, a Bible says it and that settles it kind of, of faith. The Bible says it, that settles it. The Bible says it, that settles it. And that is precisely the reason that many, many people have stepped away or are stepping away from faith. Why should I believe because the Bible says so? It's like, okay, well, that's, that's not quite a good enough reason. Why should I believe? Why should I live this way? Why should I embrace this I idea? And we tend to default to the Bible says so. And there's good reason for it. Because for generations, especially in our country, we were a majority Christian culture. Like there was, like Christianity was in the, the, the air that we breathe. People went to church. And even if you weren't necessarily like a committed Christian or a person of faith, you still kind of had like a sort of a reverence for the Bible. It's like, yeah, that's probably important. I should do that. That's not the world we live in anymore. And so if someone says, you know, why should I believe? You know, you talk about this gospel, this Jesus died for my sins. What's the big deal? Why should I do that? It's so often our instinct is to jump straight to like, I'm going to tell you why, and it's right here in the Bible. Uh, and, and we jump to something like Romans Road. If you know what the Romans Road is, you're like deep into church culture. Romans, you go through the book of Romans. It's like, well, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so if you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart that God, that, that Jesus is Lord, and God raised him from the dead, that you're going to be saved. It's like, you should believe it because the Bible says it. To which someone who is walking away from faith or isn't a part of the Christian faith says, so what? It's just a book. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, we absolutely believe this is more than just a book. But when we kind of take the approach of you just need to believe this because it's in here, we've made this the foundation of the Christian faith. And so as the foundation goes, as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity. But that's actually not the foundation of the Christian faith. That's not the foundation of the Christian faith. The foundation of the Christian faith is something much, much better, and we're going to get to that. For some of you, I, maybe this is you, maybe this is 
your kids or your cousin or your niece or your nephew, someone you know, someone you care about, like this was kind of the thing that was like, I can't hold on to this anymore. Because maybe it was, it was the Bible says that that settles a kind of framework. And it was like, well, I was in a, a very particular reading of the Bible too, of like maybe very literalistic. And, and again, we, we leave a lot of liberty and different things of like you can have different viewpoints on a lot of these non-essentials. But maybe it was like, okay, well, I, I believe like hardline absolutely in a, a 6,000-year-old earth. And then I took a biology class and I'm really convinced that it's 4.5 billion years old. And now all of a sudden my faith is falling apart. Or I discover maybe there wasn't evidence for um, a worldwide flood and my faith is falling apart. Or maybe I bump into some sort of moral objection to the Old Testament and now my faith has fallen apart because I think, well, if that part's not true, then none of it's true. And it's a house of cards. I pull a card out in Genesis and then the resurrection all of a sudden is, uh, is, is, falling, is falling down. It doesn't need to be that way. That is unfortunate and unnecessary. But the Christian faith, the earliest version of faith was a lot stronger than that. Um, you know, we, we kind of talk about this from up here, from our small groups too. So much of that stems from a misreading of those texts that are troublesome, that we'll so often import our modern way of thinking 21st century into ancient people and try to say, well, this is how they thought too. And it's like, they didn't even have those categories. But at the foundation, at the core of the issue, the foundation of the Christian faith is not the Bible. The foundation of the Christian faith is Jesus. Specifically, it's the event of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul talks about this so often in his letters. And just a couple examples. In 1 Corinthians 3, uh, he's, he's talking about like, you know, reaching people in, in, in the Corinthian church and building their faith. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 and 11, he says, By the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that was already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He goes on later in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he gets even more specific. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if the resurrection didn't happen, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The foundation of faith is a person and an event, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Maybe you're thinking, Phil, that sounds great, that sounds wonderful, cause, but isn't that kind of circular reasoning? Because you're saying the Bible's not the foundation of the faith, that Jesus and the resurrection is, but then you're going to the Bible to talk about Jesus and the resurrection, so what do you do with that? And if you're thinking that, like, good for you. Like, that is a very astute observation. That is a very legitimate critique. And I'll say kind of yes and no to that. No, I don't think it's circular reasoning. And I want to ask that you hold on because what we're going to talk about today points to why I don't think it's necessarily circular reasoning. But to get to where we're going today, there's, I got one goal. There's one thing I want us to understand, and that is this, that Christianity, the Christian faith, Christian history, the church, does not exist because of the Bible. It's the other way around. We have this thing that we now call a Bible because of what has happened throughout history in Christianity. Christian, Christianity, the Christian faith, does not exist because of the Bible. The Bible exists because of Christianity. Uh, when Andy did this series, I, um, there, he, he gave a, an example of this, and I loved it, so I'm just going to read this quote. He says, Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documented something that happened. The New Testament documents document something that happened. You don't exist because of your birth certificate. If your birth certificate were to be lost, which 
Some of you are thinking right now, is my birth certificate lost? Because like, if you're like me, you've got that folder or file at home. It's like my birth certificate, my social security card, my passport. It's like, I think that's somewhere. That's really important stuff. I should probably know where that is. But if, you're, if your birth certificate got lost or destroyed or for some reason you never had a birth certificate in the first place, nobody in their right mind would say, you don't exist. You're not a real person. You just made that up. Like, it's like, no, like my birth certificate did not create me. It documented the fact that something happened. Several somethings happened. The same thing is true with the Christian faith. The Bible exists because something happened. And some people documented it. And so to, to kind of parse that out, we're going to go on a little history lesson today. Um, who likes history? Wow. This is the same thing when we did the service for the volunteers. It was like one person, and I'm just like... It's a shame. History is awesome, okay? History is great. We're going to go on a little history lesson. It's going to be short. We're going to try to make it interesting. And no history lesson is complete without a timeline. So we're going to have a little timeline up here on the screen and work through some really, really important dates that kind of show why it's like, hey, here's how we got this thing we call the Bible and why it's more than just a book and why we can trust in the resurrection of Jesus. So the year zero, um, that's a little bit confusing, and so let me just kind of give us a reference for dating here. During the time of Jesus, they used the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar that we currently use. Uh, and so when we shifted to the Gregorian calendar, dates got kind of shifted a little bit. Uh, early on, you know, there was a kind of a, a mark in history where we separated what was B.C. and A.D., and now it's referred to as B.C.E. and C.E., before the Common Era and the Common Era. But the, the birth of Jesus is that like that line in history where we kind of separate time. Uh, but because of different calendars throughout history and dates getting shifted, we would think that Jesus was born in the year one. He was actually born in like two or three B.C. So it's like, hey, Jesus was born two years before we think he was actually born. Two or three B.C. So in, in the year zero, or it's not really year zero, it's just kind of like one, um, Jesus is a toddler. That's not really important. I just thought it was interesting. All right, so 30 A.D., 30 A.D., you have the crucifixion of Jesus. Three days later, the resurrection of Jesus. And about two months after that, the church is launched, what we call the church, the Jesus movement. The people would say, hey, we're followers of this crucified, risen Messiah. A few dozen Jewish people, this ragtag group of Jewish people, they, they, they take to the streets of Jerusalem, the city where all this stuff went down, where Jesus was arrested and crucified and, and was, was seen. They, they go to this city with a very, very simple message. If you were here with us uh, back in the spring, we did a series kind of talking about this. Their simple message was, hey, you killed him. You killed him. And it wasn't like some sort of metaphorical, like, you know, your sins nailed him to the cross. No, they're looking at the actual people that were like in the mob saying, crucify him and had him arrested uh, and killed. He said, you killed him, but God raised him. And we have seen him. Now you need to repent. You need to have a change of thinking, a change of heart in the way that you see Jesus and, and follow him. And we see this kind of pattern, this message that's given all throughout the book of Acts several times. Just one example is in Acts chapter 3, starting verse 14. They're, they're talking to this crowd, that crowd. They say, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And so hundreds and eventually thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem where these things happen, thousands of people embrace a risen Jesus. Not 50 years later, but a few weeks after the event. 30 AD. 
Now, the next important date for us is 70 A.D. I think 70 A.D. is a date that if you're a Christian, everybody should know about 70 A.D., although not many of us know, because as we just discovered, y'all don't care that much about history, but you're going to learn about 70 A.D. 70 A.D. is when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The Roman legions enter the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, tear it down completely, block by block. They burn it to the ground. No more temple in Jerusalem. This was kind of at the end of the first Jewish-Roman war. There were several kind of revolts and skirmishes between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, they were an empire, so they subjugated lots of people. They conquered lots of lands. The Jewish people weren't so fond of that, so a couple different times they tried to like rise up. We're going to gain our independence. The first Roman-Jewish war started in 66 AD, and Vespasian went through the area of Galilee, through villages and cities and towns, and was just waging war on the Jewish people. He makes his way all the way to the city of Jerusalem in the spring of 70 AD, and he's like, okay, peace, I'm out of here. He's going back to Rome to be emperor, and he leaves his son Titus in charge for him to kind of finish the job. And Titus sets up siege works around the city. There's a five-year, five, sorry, it's not five-year, about a five-month-long siege against the city of Jerusalem. They build up the you know, siege works, and day after day, the Roman armies crucify hundreds and eventually thousands of Jewish people outside the city walls. Crucifixion in the Roman Empire wasn't just a way of killing people. It was psychological warfare. It was a way of saying, you better not mess with Rome. They would leave the bodies on the crosses. They could hear the screams. They could see them. They could smell them. And this went on for months till eventually on August 6th, 70 AD, the walls of the city were breached and the Roman soldiers entered and they completely destroyed the temple, burnt it to the ground, no stone left on top of another. They enslaved tens of thousands of Jewish people. Thousands more died. Eventually, Jewish people were expelled from the city altogether, 70 AD. Now, the reason I say that's a really important date, because these major things are happening, and none of that is recorded anywhere in the New Testament documents. Like, you won't find that anywhere in the, in the New Testament documents, no mention of the events. It's actually, for like, some historians that study this, they're like, this is kind of interesting. It's a mystery to why there is no mention of this, where, where there's a, a four-year war going on where it's dangerous to live in this, this region. There's a five-month-long siege. Thousands of people die. Thousands of people are enslaved. The temple, we can't grasp the significance of this, but the temple is the center of Jewish life and worship, and it is gone. It is destroyed. And this is all happening in the area where Jesus did his ministry, where the Jesus movement began. This is all happening uh, in the area where uh, among the leaders, the, the Jesus movement began is primarily a Jewish thing with primarily Jewish leaders. And this is all happening in that area. This is affecting their lives. And nowhere in the New Testament documents is there like any mention in the letters of, hey, pray for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. There, there's, no, uh, there's no mention of, of like, hey, Jesus' prophecy, his prediction came true because Jesus actually predicted before he died that the temple would be destroyed. There's no mention of, see, he was right. He's the Messiah after all. The Apostle Paul and then especially the author of Hebrews are all about showing, hey, the, the old covenant is gone. The new is here. The new is a better covenant. Jesus is the final sacrifice. He's the temple. He's the priest. He's all these things. And there's like no mention of saying, hey, the temple is gone. Jesus really is, has brought the new covenant. No mention anywhere in the New Testament. Now, there are some different theories that could be brought forward to why that is, but the most logical explanation is the reason that that doesn't come up in the New Testament is because it hasn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. Which means that the New Testament, we now call our New Testament, all these documents were written before the year 70 AD, a 40-year window. 
Now, 40 years may seem like a long time to you, and if that's the case, you're probably younger than the age of 40. Because if you're over 40, you're like, yeah, 40 years is nothing. And in terms of antiquity, 40 years is nothing. We'll be generous, though, because some scholars think that they were written a little bit later. Um, some scholars will date, like Revelation's the latest book, and they'll date it as in the mid-90s. So even at that end, even if it's in the mid-90s for the last book, you're talking about maybe 60 years, 40 to 60 years when these things are written, which means the eyewitnesses were still alive when they were written. That they were writing not the Bible, they were writing accounts of what they had seen. The eyewitnesses were, were still alive. And so so you, you have this going on, that's significant because like, maybe you've heard or you've been told or, or you read somewhere, it's like, well, no, the, the documents were written, written way, way later, like you know, 100 or 150 AD, like later on. There's no evidence for that. There's absolutely no evidence for that. The reason people want to push that out is because of the existence of miracles and especially the resurrection because it takes about 70 years for something that is legend to start sounding like history. But people kind of passing a story down and passing a story down. So it's like, we've got to push these documents out further, but there's no evidence for that. Most of the evidence points to them being written before 70 AD. So you have these eyewitnesses writing these documents really, really early. That's important. The other important thing is the kind of documents that they wrote. The New Testament authors, especially the gospel writers, did not write like they were writing story. We have other examples of story from this time period, and the gospels don't sound like that. They sound like history. Pick up the gospel of Luke or the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote sometime, and just highlight the historical references. One example is in Luke chapter 3. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, if you're someone who reads your Bible, sometimes we like get to that part and we're like, you skip because I don't even know and what's the point, all these names and dates and places. Don't skip over that stuff. That's Luke's way of saying, this is what happened. I've researched this and you can pinpoint it to a date and a place in history. It's not a long time ago. It's not once upon a time. It's not in a galaxy far, far away. Luke's saying this is history and you can check my sources. These authors, these eyewitnesses, they, they write their documents a short time after and recording what happened. And these documents become so valuable in the first century church that they start copying them like crazy. They start making copy after copy after copy. Can you imagine how valuable it would have been in the first century church? Uh, if, you know, you're, you know, a couple decades after Jesus, you're meeting in somebody's home and a messenger shows up to your little church gathering and says, I have a letter from John. And you're like, shut up. You have a letter from John, like the John. You're like, yeah, I'm not joking. Like, I have a letter from John. John who was there with Jesus, who saw him crucified, who saw him alive, who took care of Mary. Like, I have a letter from him. Can you imagine how valuable that would be? And so they're like, we, we got to copy these. We got to make, then they would sit down and make meticulous hand copies of the New Testament. And there's an explosion of these copies in this time period. It's another one of those things that historians kind of scratch their head. They're like, this is crazy. There is nothing else like it in ancient literature. This many copies that are floating around. They make it all around the known world of the time, the Mediterranean Rim and Rome and Jerusalem and Constantinople and Egypt. And there's these copies everywhere, copy after copy after copy after copy. And maybe the skeptic in you is rising up and going, see, that's the problem. Because I've played the game of telephone before. And I know you can't get past like five to ten people before the message completely changes. So aren't there, like, aren't there, aren't there all these thousands of errors in these copies? Yep. There are. There are thousands of errors in the New Testament manuscripts. And if you stop there, you think that's the end of the story. 
but there are thousands upon thousands of copies. And the way you determine the historical accuracy of a document is you compare all of the documents together. And while there are thousands of copies, we know that they're, they're like 99% accurate. And of the errors that exist, because there are errors, their punctuation, spelling, stuff that we would, we would chalk up to grammar because they didn't have, you know, spell check and, and Google Docs to underline things in red for them, which when I'm writing something, it's just like red everywhere. But there, there are those kind of errors. But there are ones that exist that are somewhat significant, but none of them change the core message of Christianity, and nobody's trying to hide them. If you have a good study Bible, where these discrepancies come up, there'll be a little note in the margin that says, an earlier manuscript said this. A later manuscript has this. There are a couple places in the New Testament, the end of the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, um, the, the woman caught in adultery in, in John, where it might be in like italics, and it says, hey, the earliest manuscripts don't have this here. Nobody's hiding it. But these copies are so stinking accurate. So they make all these copies, and they do it with incredible, 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 incredible detail. Thousands of copies. And listen, this is, this, again, this is where I'm saying it's like it's not just the Bible says so. They were not making copies of these documents because they thought, I'm writing the Bible, man. This is like a big deal. They didn't write it because they, they, like, these documents came to them. They didn't make all these copies because they like, floated down from heaven and they're like, it's the inspired word of God. No, the reason they valued it and made copies was because they said, we believe this is what happened. From the earliest generations, the eyewitnesses passed down over and over and over. We believe this is what happened. All right, so time marches on. Time marches on. The documents continue to be copied and circulated and spread, um, and, th- and the church is blowing up. These are like the persecution years. The early, the first few centuries of the church, this is where it's, it's not a good time to be a Christian. It's not, you're not in a position of power. This is where Roman emperors are like, yeah, feed them to lions and burn them alive at the stake, and, and like bad stuff happening, and yet the church continues to explode church continues to explode. More and more people become followers of Jesus. And then in 312, Constantine becomes emperor. And Constantine issues an edict to make all religion legal in the Roman Empire. It wasn't just Christianity. He just said, hey, there, there's, there's freedom of worship in the Roman Empire. You, can, you don't have to hold on to the, the Roman pantheon of gods anymore. And he eventually lifts, like I said, he lifts the restriction on worship. And eventually he himself embraces Christianity there is question over the sincerity of his decision. Some people think it was a a legitimate, sincere decision. A lot of historians, most historians tend to think that it may not have been as much a choice of personal conversion as it was a strategic move. That Constantine was looking for something to unify the empire, something that the empire could rally around, which is crazy to think. That in just 300 years, the majority of the people of the Roman Empire had Christian faith in common. So Constantine says, yes, that's what we're going to be known for. Christianity, the Christian faith, the Jesus movement made its greatest strides in in the roughly 300 years before what we would now call the Bible was ever brought together in one place where someone could say, here's what the Bible says. Most, actually, most common, like, followers of Jesus would never even hold a Bible until after the invention of the printing press. Like, it was, it was hard to make copies of something like this. The early Christian faith, the faith that toppled an empire, basically, was not built on the back of, you should believe this because the Bible says so. The Jewish Jewish scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, would not be combined with the New Testament documents until 350 A.D., 350 A.D., and it wasn't called the Bible or to Biblia until 388, the end of the 4th century. Before the Old Testament and New Testament were brought together and called the Bible, Christianity had already replaced the pantheon of Roman 
barbarian, and most Egyptian gods and to become the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And most people had never read or heard these documents. The first, second, and third century followers of Jesus believed that Jesus loved them. Absolutely they believed that. But they did not just believe it because the Bible told them so. There was no Bible to tell them so. They believed the trustworthy eyewitness accounts. Peter, James, John, Matthew, and countless others did not follow Jesus because they read about him, but because they saw him. For the first 300 years of faith, the faith centered not on a book, but on an event. The question was not, is the Bible true? The question was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And that's still the question for us today. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Matthew comes along and says, oh, yes, he did. Mark comes along and says, oh, yes, he did. Luke comes along and says, oh, yes, he did, and I've researched it. John comes along and says, I was there, and I saw it, and yes, he did. Peter comes along and says, I was there. I mean, I, I, I saw all of it, and, and, and yes, he did. James, the little brother of Jesus, says, I didn't believe in my brother before, but now I've seen him alive. Yes, he did. Paul comes along and says, I hated Christians. I hated the church. I wanted to kill all of them and wipe the church off the face of the planet. But now I've come to believe that he rose from the dead. Oh, yes, he did. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity created the Bible. It was reliable eyewitness accounts. Now, maybe you're like, that's interesting, that's great, that's wonderful. Some people are like, yes, I love this kind of stuff. But again, not too many of y'all because you just dissing on history. And I'm just going to keep bringing that up. But you're like, okay, what, what's the big deal? What do I do with this? And kind of land the plane. At which point you're like, yes, finally. Why is this such a big deal? A couple of things. I mean, first of all, just as it relates to the, the topic of this series, it's a big deal because if you have left faith, walked away from faith, never were a person of faith, or you've got like one hand on the door and you're like, I'm kind of thinking about leaving, I don't want you to walk away unnecessarily. I don't want you to be like, I can't do this because the Bible has told me so kind of faith and I don't trust that, I don't believe that anymore. I want to invite you to take a step back towards Jesus today, or maybe take a first step towards Jesus today, by wrestling with the question, not is the Bible true, what do I believe about the Bible, but did Jesus rise from the dead? Can I trust these eyewitness accounts and these documents? And honestly, that might take some research, that might take some work on your part, but that's what I want to invite you to step towards. So that's one group of people. For, for those of us, for the other group of us that are followers of Jesus, that are Christians, and we're like, I'm in, I'm doing this, okay, let's go, uh, like, I, I want to follow Jesus. This is important for us because this is the lens through which we view Scripture. This is the way that we read things. When we approach Scripture, and if you're a follower of Jesus, man, you need to be opening this thing up and trying to encounter God and see what He's like and what He has for your life. This is the lens that we look at this through. It's the lens of, okay, Jesus has risen for the dead. That's the foundation of my faith. And if that's true, game on. God, what do you have for me? So that whenever we bump up against something in Scripture that's confusing, which you're going to bump up against things in Scripture that are confusing for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter. I mean, I've been a pastor for like eight years, and I went to Bible college, and still like daily, I'm like, I don't get it. Like, I don't know what, like, that's just part of the journey. We're going to spend the rest of our lives doing that. When you bump up against something confusing or something that, that you can't reconcile with, like, what you see in the world around you, or maybe you bump up against something that offends our modern sensibilities, that we go, wait, 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 I, I, okay, that's an issue, and i got to work through that, but did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. Okay. Then my issue with what I'm reading is probably my issue and not with Scripture. There's something I don't know. There's something I need to dig into and find out more of. And then just for all of us, no matter who you are, where you're at in life, the reason this is a big deal 
is because this is what points to the fact that you can have hope. Wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, like, like, you can have hope in your life, not because of a book, but because of a person. Like there, there is hope for whatever you are in the middle of. There is hope for an addiction that you're struggling with. There's hope for your marriage and whatever you're going through and the, the, the difficulties there. There's hope for the depression that you wrestle with. There's hope for the anxiety that is, is crippling in your life. There's hope for your kids and what they're facing. There's, there's hope if you're a follower of Jesus and you're like, I've got a cold, dead faith. There's hope for that too. There's hope for the division and the hatred that we see around us. There's hope for every single aspect and area of life and not because I read about hope in a book, but because hope is a person. Person. His name is Jesus. There is healing. There is freedom. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is a brand new beginning for you no matter where you're at. You can have a fresh start and a new beginning. You can have identity and purpose and all of these things that we long for because 2,000 years ago, the God of the universe stepped into history. He gave his life on a cross to, to set right what went wrong and to prove how much he loves you. He was risen from the grave and he is alive today. And it is that risen and living God. If you are a follower of Jesus, that risen, living God, his spirit is living within you right now. As you move, as you take a breath, as you breathe in and breathe out every second of your life, the living God is dwelling within you. You have his spirit. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we can turn to the scriptures. We can find truth there. We can find wisdom. and We can find direction. And there is power here. But there's not power here because this is the Bible. There's power here because Jesus is alive. That's what we anchor our faith to. That's what we build our life on. And so, yeah, Jesus loves you. This I know. But I can tell you with confidence it's a lot more than just because the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves you. He loves me. And I know this. And you can know this because he was crucified. He was risen. He was seen, and those eyewitnesses documented it. And the world has never been the same. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you. We, we thank you for just how amazing you are, for the truth that you do love us. But God, that our hope in you is not just a, it's not something that we, that we that, that, that's just intangible, that, that faith is, it's not blind faith, it's not just blind trust, God, but that your love for us and who you are and what you're doing, it is anchored to history. It's something that is done, it is set in stone. Lord, that, that you, you stepped into history, you gave your life on the cross for my sin, for our sin, for the sin of the world that you were risen from the grave, that people saw you. God, we thank you that we do have these accurate eyewitness accounts, that we can, we can trust that and we can lean into that. And God, I, I pray that that would be the foundation of our faith, to, to know and to believe that you are alive. Your spirit lives within us. We can know you. God, I pray for those of us who are here today that maybe we are just hopeless. Lord, that, that you would remind us of this truth that there is hope in you, there is life in you. Because if the grave couldn't hold you, what do we have to fear? How can we not have hope? So God, I pray through the power of your spirit, you would remind us of this. God, that you would just fill us over and over and over again, that you would, 
open our eyes to your truth, that as we, as we embrace this hope and this truth and the resurrection of Jesus, that then we would turn to Scripture and we would see just the life that is there, the direction and the wisdom and the power that is there. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.